Welcome to Untold Stories Podcast. I'm your host, Osama Gawish. In this episode, we will shed light on Islamophobia in the United Kingdom. Firstly, what is Islamophobia? According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word Islamophobia means intense dislike or fear of Islam as a political force, hostility, or prejudice towards Muslims. British Muslims have been categorized as being one of the most discriminated communities across the UK. According to a new report on Islamophobia published this year, the analysis by the University of Birmingham and data analysis firm YouGov discovered that the British public are more likely to hold discriminatory and negative views on Islam than on any other religion, and the significant minority of this population hold incorrect and conspiratory views on British Muslim communities. The study revealed that the demographics of those most likely to hold such Islamophobic views and beliefs are among the elderly population, working classes, males, and those who voted to Brexit, as well as supporters of the Conservative Party under Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Last month, Nusrat Ghani, a British lawmaker who lost her job as a junior transport minister in February 2020, told the Sunday Times that she had been told by a whip, an enforcer of parliamentary discipline, that her Muslimness had been raised as an issue in her sacking. The Conservative Party has previously faced accusations of Islamophobia, and a report in May last year criticized Conservative Party over how it dealt with complaints of discrimination against Muslims. The report also led Johnson to issue a qualified apology for any offense caused by his past remarks about Islam, including a newspaper column in which he referred to women wearing porkas as going around looking like litter boxes. The Guardian columnist Owen Jones wrote that Islamophobia isn't just a Tory problem. It runs right through British society. He said, and I quote, media coverage, political rhetoric, and the failure of non-Muslims to speak out have made anti-Muslim racism ministry. Last year, Zara Sultana, a Muslim MP, breaks down in tears during Islamophobia debate. She tweeted some hatred emails telling her to go back to her country because... She's not British. Muslim girls ask me what it's like. I'd like to say there's nothing to worry about. That they would face the same challenges as their non-Muslim friends and colleagues. But, Madam Chair, in truth, I can't say that because in my short time in Parliament, that's not my experience. So let me read out a few examples. One person, for example, wrote to me, and I quote, Sultana, you and your Muslim mob are a real danger to humanity. Another wrote, I'm a cancer everywhere I go, and soon they said, Europe will vomit you out. A third called me a terrorist sympathiser and scum of the earth, and that sanitised of their unparliamentary language. I have discovered that to be a Muslim woman, to be outspoken and to be left-wing, is to be subject to this barrage of racism and hate. It's so these were some words from Dara Sultana, and she ended her speech with these words. Very real in Britain today.
It's something I know too well, but it can't be defeated in isolation. The people who are spreading this hate don't just target Muslims, they target black people, they target Jewish people, they target gypsy Roman traveler communities, they target migrants and refugees. There is safety in solidarity, and it is only through uniting our struggles that we will defeat racism. There is safety in solidarity, definitely, Zara, and we will discuss this in details in this episode with my two guests. Joining me today in this episode, Migdad Versi is a campaigner against Islamophobia and for responsible reporting about Islam and Muslims in the media. He founded the Center for Media Monitoring and has been profiled for his advocacy on issues related to Islam and Muslims on his social media and on behalf of the Muslim Council of Britain. The BBC called him the man correcting stories about Muslims after he elicited dozens of apologies and corrections from the national media outlets. He's a spokesperson in the public affairs team of the Muslim Council of Britain, and his commentary on Muslims in the UK has been published in The Guardian, Independent, and with interviews across BBC Newsnight and Good Morning Britain. Thank you for joining me today, Mikdad. Thank you for having me. And our second guest in this episode, Dr. Ismail Patel. He's a visiting fellow at the University of Leeds and a chair of the UK-based NGO Friends of Al-Aqsa. He's the author of several books, including Palestine, A Brief History, Medina to Jerusalem, Encounters with Byzantine Empire, The Verses of Al-Aqsa, and Making the Muslim Problem from British Empire to Islamophobia. His articles have appeared in The Independent, The Guardian, and Counterpunch, amongst others. Ismail, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Osama, for having me. Okay, so let me start with you, Miqdad. Um, what is the definition of Islamophobia? So Islamophobia has been defined by many different people in different ways. But in the UK, there has been an, uh, an attempt by the all-party parliamentary group on British Muslims, supported by a number of academics, including Dr. Ismail Patel and, and, and many others, including Dr. Abdul Vakil, Dr. Samal Sayed, uh, and others, um, all coming together to, to, to converge on a specific definition. And that is, Islamophobia is a type of racism that, tar- it's a type of racism that targets uh, expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. And, and the key point here is that uh, when we start understanding that mu- Muslim communities are treated um, as a racialized group, as, uh, in a certain way, and it's not necessarily just Muslims, those who are perceived as Muslims are treated in that way as well. And when it is, when they are treated in, the, in, in a racist way and, and, and generalized about in that way, and we know the types of racism that exist out there in, in, in the public space, we know how racism manifests itself, whether it's someone being verbally assaulted on the street, some people having um, views about, um, uh, very hostile views towards Muslims, or whether it is even further than that, if it is structural discrimination and structural racism, like in the, in the public health, uh, in, in the public space, whether it's healthcare, education, um, trying to get a job, or even if it is uh, uh, being in the criminal justice system. So all yeah, of those and, and does, does the government here in the United Kingdom consider the, the Islamophobia as racist? No, uh, the, the government at this moment in time has not been engaging with Muslim communities, and it seems to have discarded and, and um, rejected the LBG uh, uh, definition of Islamophobia, despite it having got support from Muslim communities up and down the country. 
And, and it's really disappointing that that's the case, but it's worth noting, it's only the Conservative Party which has rejected that definition. The Labour Party has adopted it, the Green Party has adopted it, the uh, Liberal Democrats have ad- adopted it, the Scottish Conservatives, so the Conservative Party in Scotland has adopted it. So the only, the only party which hasn't adopted it is the Conservative Party here in England. Uh, and we will come to the Conservative Party and Islamophobia uh, in this episode, uh, sure. But um, Ismail, how many Muslims in the United Kingdom? Well, there is an estimate uh, from the last census. I think we, we're reaching something like three million at the moment, Mark. McNutt um, might have a more specific number. But we are a substantial number of Muslims, of course. And more than the mere statistics, I think what is very important, Brother Sama, Hmm. is to underline that we make a positive contribution to this country, either being health service, education, um, and providing all sorts of social services and network within the country, from taxi drivers to consultants uh, to uh, financial investment bankers, Uh, I I think, Ismail, this is a crucial point regarding the Muslim community in the United Kingdom because the many stereotypes and the narrative in the mainstream media for many years, they called Muslim as terrorist extremists and they are belong to ISIS and blah, blah, blah. So what do you think about the, the, the impact of the Muslim community in the United Kingdom? Well, it basically tries to disempower our youth. And I think that is very, very important. When a society and a small community is targeted, what happens is their youth get disenfranchised from the mainstream. They do not want to engage with the country itself uh, and in the social structures. And I think that weakens the society. So I think we have to, as a Muslim community and everybody who's objective, must try and challenge these uh, accusations against Muslims and highlight all the positive aspects that are being conducted and carried out rightfully by the Muslims in this country. Because as I mentioned right at the beginning, we make a positive contribution to this country in every walk of life. And I think our contribution should be acknowledged and be appreciated as well. And do you think, Ismail, there is a, a big difference between Islamophobia and racism in the UK? Only in the sense that at the moment, I think Islamophobia is not being addressed Uh, whereas racism, it is very bad in the sense that people of color uh, have been attacked historically and are continually being de- marginalized. But at least there is some sort of uh, redress for them. Uh, it's not good enough. Uh, by no means am I saying that you know uh, people of color has less discrimination towards them, but at least there's some sort of recourse, legal recourse. Uh, there's an appreciation by the wider community that what is happening to them is not right and that they need to get a redress. Whereas for Muslims, what has happened is Islamophobia has become a respectable prejudice in the UK. And I think that's very important. The yeah. fact that if somebody is, is Islamophobic, he can come on the media, on the mainstream or in a social circle and speak about it. And he's considered as a normal individual. It's respectable. And I think that is a dangerous position that we find ourselves in Britain And I think Muslims need, and the wider community really, need to be alerted to that. And Miqdad, I, I played the, the, the video of um, Zara Sultana during the Islamophobia debate last year, and she breaks down in tears regarding the hatred emails, go back to your country, you are not a British. How did you see this video? I think that what this shows is that Muslims in the public space 
are not the same as those of other faiths and other communities in the public space. The, the vitriol the Muslims face just for being Muslim, just for their Muslim identity, is, is astonishing and, 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 and really unacceptable. And unfortunately, she doesn't get the support that perhaps others who have been attacked get. And, and, and it, it makes, her, makes anyone in that public space feel much more alone. I mean, she's also not the first person. You know, Sadiq mm-hmm. Khan, who who uh, won the the election to be to be the mayor of London in a, in a campaign which Zach Goldsmith ran. And remember, that was a racist campaign that uh, conservatives themselves recognised to be unacceptable and unconservative un, un, un to do. So Sadiq mm-hmm. Khan went through that whole process, and he has explained about the death threats and the the, the vitriol and the the hate that he faces as well. So all I'd say is that if you're a Muslim in the public space, unfortunately, the reality is that this is the type of hate that you face. Um, mm. And they use these these tropes about Muslims, that Muslims are... are, are um, do, do you think there is a difference of uh, which party you, you, you are a member of? Because we, we, we have two examples now, Zara Sultana from the, the, the Labour and Nusrat Ghani from the Conservative. D- do you think that the, the public, the Conservative Party and the ministry media reacted equally to uh, Zara and uh, Nusrat? So I think, I think that there were slightly different issues in the sense that um, Zara Sultana's, uh, the hate that she received were from you know, individuals and, and, and from people um, who, who hid themselves on social media, etc. Nusra Ghani, she was talking about the, the, the discrimination she faced uh, from within the heart of government, from the government wits, and, and, uh, and re- recalled from the government wits. So I think it's a different story, but it, are they treated equally? I, I think that uh, as a whole, those who are in positions of less power seem to get far less support in, 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 in what happens. And Nusrat Ghani, obviously, when she disclosed what happened to her, she had dozens of people coming out in public space, in, in influential people who came out and supported her. And I think yeah. it's important that that happens regardless of where you're from. But also, I, I just note a couple of things here. That there are a number of other Muslim MPs who also received vitriol. Naz Shah, for example, in the Labour Party, um, she, she, had, she received death threats. In fact, there was someone who went to court because of the threats that she had faced. Uh, the, the national face. As I said, Sadiq Khan has had something similar again from the Labour Party as well. But what, what I would also note is that the people who are making these hateful things, Sadiq Khan, for example, has had a member of Parliament attack him and make racist comments towards him. Uh, one of those has become a, a minister for in the government. One of them is, is is someone who's out there defending the Prime Minister on a regular basis. Actually, both of them are. And, and these are the types of hateful language, um, you know, comparing um, or, or expecting someone who's in the public domain who's Muslim to somehow defend against grooming gangs. What has that got to do with these individuals? They're not part of anywhere where they can tackle grooming gangs elsewhere in the country. But they were asked about it. Why? Because Muslims are expected to answer for crimes which have nothing whatsoever to do with them. That is, yeah. is by its very definition, racism. Yeah, and Ismail, your recent book, The Muslim Problem from the British Empire to Islamophobia, gives a strong analysis, um, actually, ab- about the, the roots of the problem. My question is, do you think Muslims in the UK have problems regarding their religion? C- can you say that the British community has a problem with Islam? 
Not in the sense of their faith as to do with the faith itself. No, I don't think so. I think what it is, is they're using Islam to attack the Muslims. And, and that's why the idea of Muslimness, if you think about the first victim after 9-11, it wasn't a Muslim, it was a Punjabi uh, a person called Mr. Singh in, in USA who was killed because he looked like a Muslim. So the idea of faith itself, I think we have to be very, very careful here that anybody who's perceived to be looking like a Muslim is a target. And if it was just to do with the faith, I'm sure that people who look like Muslim wouldn't be targeted. So Islam as a faith, yes, of course, there are some theological differences, and Islam has historically been used to attack Muslims with. It's seen as a competitive religion. It's seen as something uh, that undermines so-called Western Christian ideology, whether it's the faith or just a way of thinking. Uh, but I would not say that Islam per se is the target here. Hmm. It's a target for Muslims, and Muslims need to understand that, that they use different tropes, and Islam is one of those tropes that are being used to attack us with. Uh, of course, uh, what is happening is they're using Islam as a means of uh, different people where the Muslims are, th- are thought to be thinking differently from the West. Similarly, I suppose we can draw a parallel to how the Eastern communists were thought about uh, just a few decades ago, and now Islam has taken that place. Uh, but here I would be very, very sort of cautious in saying that, you know, it's not Islam per se, uh, but it's Islam itself is used to attack Muslims. And do Muslims are hold account of this false stereotyping in the mainstream media? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's a tool that is very convenient. Uh, of course, a lot of Islamic religious text is used to show that Muslims are not cannot be part of the West or, or are violent in their nature. There's misconstrued uh, verses of the Quran, mis- deliberately misrepresented, so that they can show that Muslims uh, are somehow violent and so forth, or you know, out of context verses are, are revealed every now and then. So, as I mentioned, Islam, uh, Islam and Islamic text is used as a tool. Uh, and Muslims shouldn't think that if they give up Islam, they'll be st- they will not be hated. I, I, you know, we've just found out from Nusrat Ghani, and I'm sure she would be first to uh, declare herself that she's not particularly a practicing Muslim. Uh, but they used the mere fact that her heritage and history and her cultural background leads to Islam and Muslim, or Muslimness. That, that was targeted. And that's why Mikdad, right at the beginning, mentions the idea that Islamophobia is a type of racism, mm. because here racism is not the skin color. Here we're talking about people who are racialized irrespective from which country you come from, whether it's Africa, Middle East, or Far East, or even Europe itself, Muslim, European Muslims. We should never forget that there's white Muslims as well who are targeted. Uh, and, and that racialization is what is being uh, referred to as a type Islamophobia as a type of racism. Yeah, and so we are talking now about the reason and the, the responsibility of the rising of Islamophobia in the UK. Miqdad, what are the main reasons from your perspective of Islamophobia in the UK? So I think that these come from a range of different um, perspectives and I think um, uh, Isma will be able to give a lot of the history and the, the, the context by which the, the British Empire and the colonial um, approach towards the other and, and, and Muslims have come from. But more recently, there is this view amongst many that Muslims are a threat to our way of life. That I think uh, some of the polling showed that 
half of the half of, half of the people in this country believe that Islam is a threat to the British way of life. And the the reason they there's this sort of underlying view that Muslims are different from the rest of us, and that's sort of been been consolidated um, through a range of different means, whether that's through mainstream media, whether it's through leading politicians, whether it's through those who hate us, who have tried to create this idea that Muslims are different. Muslims are terrorists. Muslims are groomers. Muslims are are those who abuse women. These are all these stereotypical tropes about Muslims, that that there are no-go zones where non-Muslims can't enter. All of these lies and conspiracy theories about Muslims have gained a lot of traction. And not attraction, not attraction um, um, just amongst the extreme, you know, racist of society right in the, right in the very, very small minority. Unfortunately, as, as Ismail was mentioned earlier, this has become very mainstream. Um, some of the views about whether, for example, Tommy Robinson, one of the far-right extremists, far-right mm. racists out there against Muslims, you know, the idea that he has something of, of value to say and that he's been uh, unfairly treated in the media... Half of Conservative Party voters, according to the Hope Not Hate poll, think that that, that that he's been unfairly treated. They think that these Islamophobes are actually the ones who are the victims. They think equal opportunities has gone too far when it comes to Muslims, according to different things. And that's despite the fact that polling shows that, uh, according to the Equality and Human Rights Commission in 2018, they say that 70% of Muslims have experienced religious-based hatred, religious-based mm. prejudice in the last year. Now, look, this is, it, it's a, such a large problem. And the reason it's so large is because so many people have these perceptions and views about Muslims, which manifest themselves then in, in different ways, whether that is through the way that they have views and interact with Muslims and say, as a Muslim, you are responsible and accountable for more things than other things um, and, and for things that you have nothing to do with, whether it's the fact that they actually verbally abuse people or whether it's the fact that in their daily life, like Muskani was talking about, the Muslimness of an individual makes them the other and makes them have to have accountability to do things that others don't have to do. And this mm. type of discrimination, racism, prejudice, whatever you want to call it, but this Islamophobia is something that is so pernicious, so so um, rooted within some, some people across not just a tiny section, but a, gro- a larger section of our society. And that's what the problem is. And that's what's driven the problem that we have and we face today. Yeah, and I need to go back to um, the columnist, the Guardian columnist, uh, uh, Owen Jones, who said at the beginning, uh, the problem in the society, it is not, yeah. Here, Owen Jones wrote, and I quote, Islamophobia isn't just a Tory problem, it runs right through British society. Uh, Ismail, you wrote an op-ed in Middle East Eye uh, last month, and the headline of your op-ed was, is Islam fundamentally incompatible with Britishness? Is it a problem, a historical problem, or it's something recent with the, the rising of the far right in, in European countries? That's a very loaded question. Let, let me try and unpack that. Uh, of course, there was a level of hatred against Muslims during colonialism uh, and when the empire was expanding. Muslims were a great obstacle to the British colonialist project, and there were Muslims and therefore were seen uh, as a, a barrier to what Britain wanted to do. And there was a hatred against Muslims. But I think we should be very careful and not translate that as Islamophobia. I think Islamophobia is something uh, different and it is happening now. And what is happening now was not necessarily the same as what was happening during the British Empire time. During those times, 
Britain had different different aspirations, and Muslims were seen in a different negative. They were seen in a negative light, but for different reasons. Uh, Britain now is not trying to expand. They don't hate the Muslims in Britain holding British passport because they want to make the British Empire bigger. It's for completely different reasons, and therefore I think that's a very important distinction. And the reason we have to make that that distinction is not just simply for academic reasons or historical reasons. It is for us to then be able to formulate the anti-Islamophobia strategy. Because if we simply think that Britain has always hated the Muslims, then it will become very difficult for us to come up with formulas and sort of brainstorm and try and understand how to counter the attacks we, we, that are occurring to Muslims. So coming back now to the 20th century, I think the problem now is much more complex, uh, but it is, there is some sort of parallel. It, there is a realignment of Britishness wanting to be still supreme over the rest. And here Muslims become a simple target because for several reasons that Muslims are found across the globe and Britain, uh, they transcend national borders. It's much easier to target them and also be able to then define what Britishness is in relation to Muslims. Otherwise, Britishness itself doesn't have a meaning. And I think that is something that we're entering in, and that is something very dangerous that is occurring, I think. Hmm. That Britishness itself, now if you think, if you ask about British values, you will see that they're contrasted mostly against Muslims. That we are, for example, more civilized vis-a-vis Muslims. We have human rights, free speech, Muslims don't. We respect our women, Muslims don't. So it's in relation to Muslims. So that, that's what Mikdad was saying earlier, that Muslims have been made the other. Yeah. And this othering, and the reasons for that othering are different now as they were during the empire time. And, and this I, I othering think, reason... Yeah, yeah I think what, what you mentioned now is my... Is, um, Maghdad, you had a long journey to document such stereotypes and such a false uh, reporting on Islam and on Muslim and documenting the Islamophobia in the British media. W- would you tell me more about it? Of course. So um, when it comes to Islamophobia in the media, one of the things that you notice is that most Muslims, if you ask them, and there's been polling on this as well, they'll say that the media has Islamophobia, you know, is riddled with Islamophobia. There's lots and lots of polling which shows this. And actually, even amongst the British public, there's polling which shows that um, uh, many people in the British public, and I think it's a majority of, of, of Britain, recognize that there's Islamophobia within the media. So the question then comes, what do you do about it? What, how can you even highlight it? And, and a few years ago, um, I started this journey. I recognized the importance of of trying to complain about articles and, and go through the regulator. It's not a, a brilliant regulator, but it's a regulator nonetheless. Um, and to highlight that this is a lie about Muslims and you shouldn't do this. And and that led to a meeting with the managing editor of, a, of the Mail on Sunday at the time and, and, and a recognition and understanding that, that should change. So what I did from then on is I started highlighting more and more examples of lies about Muslims. I mean, there were things... Um, astonishing things which are just not true, like uh, a gunman shouted Allahu Akbar um, as he uh, entered a Spanish supermarket. Uh, that was a, a story in, in, in the Sun newspaper, or the, Sun, the Sun Online, which was just not true. In fact, what happened was a, a, someone was speaking Basque language, the local the, 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 the Basque language there in the, that region, nothing to do with Muslims. It was not, not even, it was nothing to do, it was just not true. Um, and, and yet, when it was a Muslim, it was called a terrorist terror. When it was changed, and after I complained about it and said it was just not a true article, it was talked about it being a horror attack. 
because they don't use terrorism when it comes to Muslims. So what we what we've been able to do is find example after example. I mean, and I mean dozens, if not hundreds, of examples where where the newspapers have admitted this is where they've admitted we got it wrong and we will correct it either because you've told us or because the regulators forced us to, and that we have gone through that and we had to make that happen. Now that was one part of that journey, but the other part of work that we've been doing is writing reports about this. So we, we've we've now got a number of we've, we've looked at. Tens of thousands of articles, thousands of clips of news are, um, are broadcast on TV. And I, we, I think it's worth that to mention the number of reports that you complain against it. How many? So, so the number of complaints that we've done directly um, already and which have had changes made to them uh, is, is in the three figures. So hundreds of them. Um, mm. and, and that's the number that we have that, that have been changed. That's not taking into account the number which... They don't. They're not willing to change, even though they're wrong, because we can't prove it categorically, and and the, that that shows how big the problem is. And, and therefore, what we've what we've been able to document through all of these examples, through these case studies, through statistical analysis of of hundreds of thousands of a hundred thousand plus articles, which we have analyzed against a series of metrics using a. Um, a methodology adopted and worked with, with some of the top academics in, in critical discourse analysis in the country is that there is a problem, it is undeniable and it needs to be tackled uh, and we've then laid out ways in which this can be be resolved and, 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 and dealt with because for our perspective and, and there's again some research to show this the way that Islam and Muslims are represented in the media are according to a University of Cambridge uh, roundtable creates what, what they call an atmosphere of rising hostility towards Muslims. And the University of Le- Leicester also talks about how Islamophobia in the media and from politicians um, is a cause of rising hate crime. So mm-hmm. the, the, the way that Muslims are reported is a big driver of the perceptions of Muslims in our society. And that's why it's so important that they get it right. And the fact that Muslims aren't even well represented in the media, the City University um, uh, survey showed that only 0.4% of journalists are Muslim. That's less than a tenth of what it should be if you call to, if you try to be proportional. And just imagine in the upper echelons, in the, in the decision-making roles, how few Muslims there are. So th- that doesn't mean to say there aren't brilliant Muslims who are in these spaces. There are many brilliant Muslims from, from, from those who are like Mashal Hussain on BBC Radio 4, Fatima Manji on Channel 4 News, um, um, in the in Zamam and uh, Sky News and others and others. Uh, uh, Mehdi Hassan, as, as, as you yeah. know, you know, there are many Muslims who are out there in the media, but they form a very small minority. And what we need to try and see is how can that change? Because when Muslims are part and parcel of all of these news outlets... And many this, this is also raised raise another important um, question, Megdad, I'm sorry. Um, Ismail, in, in the Middle East, when we talk about the rule of media close to the authoritarian regime, we can say that this media can point and control the public awareness of the people. Um, and here in the UK, is it the same that the stereotype of the, the mainstream media against Muslims in the United Kingdom can control and point the people awareness against Muslim minorities? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the media is a, not a window to the world for, for most of the people, but that is where they form their perception of the world as well. Uh, they unfortunately uh, believe what the media tells them, particularly when it is packaged as news or when experts are provided or put forward to say this is an expert opinion, but it is really peddling 
I mean, in this context, Islamophobic attitude and approach. And therefore, most, what I would say, innocent people would take that as face value. We have to also remind ourselves that I would say, I think there's a statistics, if I might not be spot on, but something like nearly 70% of British public has not met a Muslim. Yet they hate the Muslims. So how do they make their opinion? They make their opinion through one of the ways is through the media. And therefore, the media's role is absolutely crucial. Uh, a lot would you, would you say that, that statistics again, again, Ismail, I'm sorry? How many? But something like 70% of British public have, have never not met physically met a, a Muslim. Wow. So, and, and then we have, you know, all the statistics show that over 50% of the British public uh, are scared of Muslims, uh, are worried that Muslims are going to take over Britain. There's something, something called Sharia law, no-go areas. Where do they get these ideas from? Of course, one of the ways is through the media. And, and media, therefore, plays a very pivotal role. And I would say, excuse me to use the word, but it's the sewer that is polluting uh, the mindset of Britain for Islamophobia to be rife. Yeah, and Maghdad, this is another point regarding this media. I, I, I'm working in a British uh, media TV station. It's in, speaking Arabic, but it's still under the Ofcom regulation. And uh, when I write for The Guardian of for whatever, any publication here in the UK, they are talking about the independent press standard organization, IPSO. So how can this British publications or mainstream media who are working under the Ofcom or the IPSO can reporting false news or stereotyping Muslims like what you said and Ismail said now? So they do that because um, th these regulators aren't proactive regulators. They don't stop things happening. What they do is they're reactive. In other words, only if and only if someone complains about an article will they do something about it. So, um, for example, when the Times lied about um, Muslims, in, in many of the ways that it's lied about Muslims, but on its front page, when it said that Christian girl forced into a Muslim foster care, when it made that lie, it did so because it thought it could get away with it. It thought that nobody would complain, and it thought that even if they did complain, they could defend themselves. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, um, it was shown to be a lie. Um, but, but also, there is a, something worth noting here, which is the regulators, despite them being, you know, uh, IPSO being very different to Ofcom, by the way, Ofcom is a bit stronger than IPSO. IPSO yeah. allows a lot more um, latitude when it comes to generalizing and, and, and inciting hate against Muslims, which isn't um, actually against the IPSO regulations. That's why things like Katie Hopkins's article about um, migrants being like cockroaches, you know, these are some of the worst types of demonization and dehumanizing of Muslims wasn't seen to be a breach of IPSO regulations. And that's because Muslims as a group aren't, um, aren't protected under IPSO rules. So, so the, the, the reason they get away with it, and the reason they do it is sometimes they think they can get away with it, and sometimes because the regulations actually aren't um, extensive enough to protect groups from, from um, group-based discrimination. It's not protected under the rules uh, of IPSO. And so what we, what we need is, is a, a real recognition um, and, and to be honest, it needs a, a choice from the top. So, for example, The Express, it's a right-wing tabloid which historically has had front-page stories against Muslims and migrants, which have been disgusting um, and, and Islamophobic. But the new editor which came in place, his name is Gary Jones, he came and said, you know what, I admit it. Our mm -hmm. newspaper was Islamophobic in the past. 
And when the leadership recognizes that and says, we are not going to do that. And I think the words he used were, we need to be monitored. And we said, yeah, you know what? We're going to monitor you and we're going to keep in, in a, uh, at the center for media monitoring. We're going to monitor you. We'll see if you do bad things and we'll let you know and we'll try and make sure you don't do it again. And the, the key point is if you have leadership of these news outlets to say, you know what? You can have any political position. You can be on the left of the spectrum, the right of the spectrum. You can be in the middle, wherever you want to be. But you don't incite hate. You don't discriminate. You don't act in a racist way. That's not too much to ask from our nation's editors. Hmm. And so... Um I'm just want to say to our listeners, you can join the discussion, make a contribution or ask a questions. Just press the call button and you will be held in the caller's queue. As my regarding the recent reports from uh, Birmingham University and YouGov, um, why elderly people, males, working class and pricksters are more likely to hold this Islamophobia views against Muslims? Uh, let me just go back uh, before I answer that, if you don't mind. Let me go sure. back to the question you, you posed to Mikdad. What is also important in media is who is not being presented or who is not being heard, people who are excluded. Normally, the discriminated community is always excluded to present their views into the mainstream. And I think that is a point we always forget. It is very good, the work Mikdad is doing, and I hope he carries on doing what he's doing. But we have to take a step forward now and demand that Muslims should be speaking for Muslim issues. I mean, you know, when it comes to women, we don't get non-women to speak for them. When it comes to football, we have football experts to speak to them. When it comes to environment, we get environmentalists to speak to them. Why is it when it comes to Muslims, we get non-Muslims to speak on our behalf or for us? So that is something very, very important, and we need to fight for that. Because without having our voice at the center of discussion, I think we are marginalized and we, we become silent, and therefore, you know, the the discrimination perpetuates. Yeah. So that is something very, very important. But I now, think despite this point, this point, people can argue because in your bio and in, in Meghdad's bio, I read that Meghdad's commentary on Muslims in the UK, published in The Guardian, independent interviews no. across BBC, BBC News, sure. Night and Good Morning Britain. And yourself, you are also right in The Independent, The Guardian and Counterpunch, among others. So they are um, offering you opportunity to express your thoughts freely. No, this, this is a very good, that's a very good question, Brother Osama. You have to remember there's 24-7 news uh, uh, reels moving on in the country, right? And we get called maybe twice a year, three times a year, if we're lucky half a dozen times a year, in one channel, one media, out of hundreds in a day. That is not proportional. Uh, you know, experts are always reeled out who do not represent our community. So we are, there's a handful of people in this country who speak or who have been called to discuss Islamophobia when there's, there should be hundreds and Muslims should be there at the center of almost every discussion. I think when non-Muslims discuss Islamophobia without Muslim presence, I think that should be a red alert, and people should be concerned about that discussion in the first place. But you know, uh, Smai, I think that- there is there is um, there is a something important in the media. They are saying when pleads it leads. The breaking news it's when it's breaking news. So maybe me and you and Mehdad. So this Islamophobia should be in the breaking news, should be in Newsnight, but the editors, the producers, they say no. It is, it is not important for, for British people to discuss such a topic. What do you think? I mean, this, this is part of the story, isn't it? This is part of where the people who are undermine their voices not heard or their stories are not being told. I mean, I'll give you an example, a very good example. In November 21, just a few months ago, uh, a lady by the name of Arut Shah became the 
leader of a council in a city near Manchester called Oldham. Now, she became a leader of a council. Immediately she was elected, she started receiving death threats and her car was firebombed. No mainstream media covered it. In fact, look it up. You might be also be surprised that how come no, you, you didn't hear about it. But it happened to a Muslim. And the fact that nobody covered it, that was taken away. So it doesn't, nobody is aware of what's happening to Muslims. So the Muslim stories are not heard. So the editors in themselves are acting prejudicially against Muslims. Uh, and we need to be at the forefront of that to make sure that Muslim stories, both positive in the sense that what Muslims are contributing, as well as what is happening to them uh, and the attacks there and the discrimination against them should mm. be highlighted. And whatever perspective they have about different aspects must be heard as well. And Muslims, the other very important aspect here is Muslims should not only be reeled out to talk about ethnic minority issues or Muslim issues. They have different views. Muslims are contributing, as I mentioned right at the beginning, throughout. Why don't we talk about Muslims when they talk about environment? Or, for example, the COVID injection itself was first uh, done by a German, a Muslim uh, man and woman. Hmm. Their Muslimness was never talked about. Yeah, yeah and, when and it's negative, it's talked about. When it's positive, it's not talked about. And yeah, these are and some of the disparities we, we, we face and we have to try and answer. Sure. Um, be before answering the question regarding the Birmingham reports, Maqdad, this is also another important point. Do you think from your journey documenting the Islamophobia in the mainstream media, there is um, derivatory ignorance for Muslims' topics? I think there's a, a mixture of approaches, right? So there'll be some newspapers where there is an active um, anti-Muslim drive um, throughout the editorial line of the paper, whilst there might be some positive stories from, you know, from a religion correspondent or whatever. The, the, the editorial line is anti-Muslim, and, and that is shown by the investigations that are, that are done, that is shown through the way that they report, the wording they use, the pictures they use, the, the prominence that's given to negative stories about Muslims, and the choice of stories about Muslims. And so I think that, that sometimes it's an intentional, agenda-driven, um, anti-Muslim approach. But I think that on, on the whole, by many of them, it's mainly because they don't know any better. So if we, if we look at the statistics about views about Islam and Muslims, it's so negative that it, within any outlet, within the editorial room, a lot of them will have anti-Muslim views just because of they're part of the population as a whole. And what will happen is that normally when a, a negative story about Muslims would, would come, if I were to look at that headline, I would say, that doesn't sound right. We need to check it out again. We need to make sure it's right. But for other people, when they see that negative Muslim story, they'll say, oh, that sounds right, because I know that Muslims aren't very good. That seems to be a reasonable story, so we don't need to check it again. And I think there's a lot of that, that sort of just misrecognition of who Muslims are, and that these stories need to be checked and and and, and um and, and be much more careful so i think it's it's not necessarily only that some people have an agenda although some do um i think not only is it that sometimes they just they miss it because they they they, they have their own internal muslim anti-muslim views but sometimes it's just then ends up being because there's certain people who push stories out to these newspapers so they, yeah. these anti-Muslim think tanks who who put out reports or or, or, or press releases which are very anti-Muslim, and some newspapers just run them without due diligence and checking through them properly. And so, what we are, what we always hope for, is fair and responsible reporting on Islam and Muslims. We're not saying that people shouldn't talk about negative stories about Muslims. Of course, you can, 
But make sure that's in the context. Make sure people understand what's going on. Make sure you're not cherry-picking and having so many negative stories about Muslims that don't reflect the reality. Be reasonable, be fair, be responsible. And we will hold you to account. That's all we're yeah. asking. And this is, this is um, will um, take us to Birmingham report. Birmingham University's uh, report. Smile, why elderly people, males, working class and pricksteers are most likely to hold this Islamophobia views? Talking about the January 22 report uh, that came out last month, yeah, this, the, the main thing I think their headline was that middle class uh, people are more prejudicial than uh, working class people. Uh, if, I, if I read it right, yeah, uh, so yeah, so what we have here, Brother Osama, is I mean, for me, it was I, I laughed almost when I heard read this uh, to be a report. Because it is always the, the chattering classes, the talking heads, the people who, if you like, set the agenda, who formulate the greater society's vision or direction. And they are the, always the middle class. Uh, they are the thinkers, they are the writers, they are the ones who will appear uh, in the media or they will be quoted or they will be part of the political structure. Uh, and historically, I mean, if you think in Europe itself, Enlightenment and Enlightenment philosophers, Uh, some of the most racially uh, racist characters in, in history, and, and they were the elites of Europe. So uh, it was not news for me, and then I was surprised the way they, they put it. Uh, and I, I was, in, in a way, I was concerned that, that actually it met headlines, because that is what happens. What The, the difference here, and I think what, what they failed to, for, from my perspective, is what they should have clarified is that Middle class and institutional racism hurts a community more than the racism that occurs on the street level. At street level, you could have physical violence to an individual or physical abuse shouted to a Muslim or any racist attack. Right? That is a one-to-one. But when it's institutionalized through a middle class, upper class system, then it affects thousands, if not millions of people. People are held back throughout their lives. It impacts the society at every level. Uh, there's no progression in that society. That society then starts suffering internally. I mean, then you have, like, let's take the example of Britain, which McDonald has touched about, and few reports have come out. NHS report came out just last week to show that people of color, ethnic minorities in Britain, are, not, are being unfairly disadvantaged with healthcare system. Now, that's a whole system. Where if you people of color, that includes Muslims and non-Muslims, you're less likely to be referred for mental health issues. If your wife gets pregnant and using neonatal, you're likely to suffer more abuses. You have a child, your child would have poorer health care in Britain. That is institutional. And that is done by middle class people because that's the way they're thinking and that's the way they've been molded. Hmm. And that sometimes translates to the street level where then you see mobs and yobs shouting and which then makes the headline trying to make people think that this is a fringe issue. It's not. It is it transcends the whole society. I would go as far as saying now in Britain, there is no left-right divide as far as Islamophobia is concerned. Islamophobia, in fact, has taken a step forward and has become a vote winner. The fact you mentioned Brexit, and the reason, one of the reasons Brexit was successful in Britain was because of racist element. They did not want, quote-unquote, foreigners. Despite the fact that when we, they were talking about foreigners, In, in practice, it meant Eastern Europeans, but what in theory and people who are racist were actually thinking people of color and, and Muslims in that. 
So you can see this change of dynamics and, and hence, I think, a report, an academic report, should have had much more nuances to show that Islamophobia and racism is a middle-class issue. It has always been like that in Europe and it has always transcended from top down rather than bottom up. But uh, why elderly people in the United Kingdom um, have this Islamophobia views, Ismail? I, I think that's because they have a more nostalgic effect of empire and imperialism. And, mm. and it would be interesting not to, to note what type of middle class people, I mean, sorry, elderly people they question, because it doesn't say that. Uh, are these the people who may be served in the army, whether the ones who are associated uh, with foreign powers and so forth? Because if you have that, then you have this image of Britain and part of the collapse of British Empire is, without saying it, is considered because of the Muslims' resistance. Mm. And Muslims here now come in where there's a reformulation of the uh, discrimination against Muslims during the empire time to a post-colonial restructuring of how Muslims are marginalized. So there is a relationship, but it's not a direct relationship, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah. But of course, those who feel that you know Britain was great and their greatness was undermined because of this quote-unquote foreigners, and that foreigners now are Muslims, then you can see why the elderly who had some sort of semblance of a better remembrance of their British empire than the younger people. Yeah, and um, I need to um, stop here with some interesting findings in this report, actually. Um, they interviewed uh, 1,667 people between the 20 and 21 uh, July 2021 and supporting for prohibiting all Muslim migration to the UK is 4 to 6 percent higher for Muslim than it is for other ethnic group. 18% of this survey support banning all Muslim migration to the United Kingdom. 9.5% strongly support uh, banning Muslims. Overall, supporting for prohibiting Christian migration is 13%, and Jewish migration is 11.8%. So um, how do you see these findings? Well, these findings are, are generally quite quite bad, right? Because the, the way that... What you see is that um, depending on the type of issue, and the report covers a lot of areas and, and, and the polling that comes actually corroborates previous polling, which there's a lot of as well, which all show similar types of things. That if you come to sort of softer issues like do you think Islam and Muslims are a threat to our way of life, um, you know, you're looking at 40% of the population. If you go down to those who believe individual conspiracy theories about Muslims like no-go zones, and you're looking at 25% or 30% of the population. If you want to go down to really hateful views like you think Muslims have a plot to take over the country, you're looking at 18%, 20% or, or even less in, in certain areas. And so what you see is that uh, the way that Muslims are treated and considered, um, according to this poll um, from the Yugo the poll that was part of the, the University of Birmingham uh, report by Stephen Jones, Dr. Stephen Jones, is one thing. But it's not just a singular poll. This is yeah. a poll that's been corroborated by poll after poll after poll. And so that's what's so disappointing, that people seem to not recognize that the scale of Islamophobia is so entrenched within our society, within so many sections of our society, that it's not a, an extreme thing of only a small minority, but actually one that a sizable minority have. And then when it comes to certain elements, so for example, within you know conservative party voters, then that minority becomes a majority in, in, in some of these cases. And that's yeah. what's really shocking and really dangerous and really worrying. 
And and this is regarding the Conservative Party. The, the, the survey revealed that the majority of Conservative voters and Leave voters agree that Islam threatens the British way of life. D- do you think we have a problem inside the Conservative Party, Magdad? Well, there's no doubt in, in my mind that there's a problem with the Conservative Party. I, I, it's worth noting that I think there's also a problem in the Labour Party, and the Labour Muslim Network report on this shows it as well. But I think that there's a bigger and specific problem when it comes to Islamophobia in the Conservative Party, because in part they think they can just get away with it. In part they think they can sweep it under, sweep it under the carpet and no one will do anything about it, because they haven't been able to be held to account. In the, you know, um, um, at the Muslim Council of Britain, we... We, pub- we did a lot of work on this. And we highlighted hundreds of cases. And I mean literally 300 examples we gave of Islamophobia from um, um, the prime minister to MPs, to advisors, to councillors, to leader of councils, to individual conservative party members, all within the party who had engaged in Islamophobia and Islamophobic acts. And no action was taken in many of those cases against them. And some of them they were, but many of them they weren't. And the Conservative Party seems to think that it can get away with it. It, it launched its own investigation, the Swaran Singh investigation, to try and um, um, allay fears and to stop an EHRC independent investigation. And there, the Swaran Singh report, which itself had lots of challenges with it, you know, he he employed someone who who, does, who believes Islamophobia is a junk term and and you know quite hostile views towards mainstream Muslims. And that do, was do, you have, do you have any explanation why they are doing or taking this approach? Um, I think that some of these people have very hostile views because they see Muslims as the other. So it depends. Look, as, what you have and is that Islamophobia is a top-down phenomenon. You know, I mean, it's bottom-up as well, but top-down primarily, as as Ismail was saying. And so you have the elite in, in some of these spaces who think that Muslims are a threat to our way of life, Islam is a threat to our way of life, and we need to stop them. And these people... Um, it's supported by think tanks, supported by um, uh, individuals who have really quite hostile views towards Muslims, are uh, propagate those views, ha- hold those views, and have no problem when others share those views. Um, and 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 I think that unfortunately, until and unless the Conservative Party is forced, and I mean forced, kicking and screaming to actually tackle the problem that it faces, there are going to be cases like the case of Nasgani, like other cases, which will continue to happen month after month, year after year, until and unless a real zero-tolerance policy is taken and the party converts. And it's worth noting here that there are many, many, many Muslims in this country who, from a um, a demographic perspective, their wealth, their education background, um, where they live, um, their their, um, political perspectives, their entrepreneurial approach, their low-tax mentality, their, their small state views would be natural conservative party followers. Hmm. Uh, uh, but in reality, <laughs> if you look at all of the statistics about where Muslims vote, very, very few vote conservative. Despite them naturally, many of them on their social conservative views, naturally being more conservative and conservative party followers. And that's what's really troubling here. That, that there's this view that we can discard the Muslims. They're never going to vote for us. They're never going to be people who, who we care about. But in reality, that's not the case. And what we want is that the end goal is that as a Muslim, you should be able to vote for whoever, whichever party you want, Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, S&P, whatever you want, but based yeah. on your politics, not based on your Muslim identity. 
Yeah, and, and Ismail, uh, when we talk about a man who is a prime minister now in the United Kingdom, and who referred to a woman wearing porkas as going around looking like litter boxes, do you think Boris Johnson is a part of the problem, or maybe he can be a part of the solution? Well, as a leader, any political leader can be a part of the solution if he so wishes to be. But uh, as we started off saying that, you know, Islamophobia is a respectable prejudice in the UK. So he, I think, uses uh, any means to get uh, or to get his crowd rallying behind him. And, and in a way, uh, you know, this is um, popular polit- politics. And that's quite concerning that, that what he's doing is he's using a fringe or extremist ideas to bolster his own position. And he's, he's done that with a lot of people. In, in fact, he's undermined people of color, people from Africa, uh, whenever he, he chooses to. Uh, and I think it's very calculated. I, I don't think we should say or should think that this was accidental. I think it's a calcula- calculated political move in order to gain uh, votes, in order to gain popularity with the mainstream right. Uh, in particular, that, that's... Uh, ascending in this country, uh, and it's a political maneuver. So it is a great concern that he's using that. Uh, his office can be used, whether he as an individual can be the, that person, I have my reservation. I, I cannot see him hmm. being the person who can try and address the issue of Islamophobia. But of course, the office of prime minister is very powerful, uh, and it is definitely an office that should be used. to try and address the issue that Muslims are facing in this country. Yeah, and Mehdad, do you think the government is turning blind eye to Islamophobia? Um, there's little doubt in my mind that the government could be doing significantly more when it comes to Islamophobia. You just look at the initiatives that have been taking place, you look at the hate crime action plan of 2016 and what happened in 2018 and the, 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 the progress against that action plan, and you see how little progress there has been. It's not that people don't know there's a problem, it's not that the people don't know that there are ways to solve it, it's that there's no will to actually do it. And unfortunately, um, whilst some of the civil servants actually do have that will, This government seems to be taking a choice in many regards not to tackle Islamophobia, not to engage with mainstream Muslim groups, not to try and make lives better for Muslims, but actually, in many cases, make things worse. And I think that until and unless there's that recognition of, of the problem, acknowledgement of the scale of that problem, uh, and, and people who are willing to actually deal with it and, 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 and rid our society of racism, whatever the type of racism it is, rather than just the racism that politically suits them to, to, to tackle at a certain point in time, I think that we're going to be in, in, in trouble for a long time to come. And um, the next question is for both of you, actually. You, Miqdad and Ismail, among others, are campaigning against Islamophobia. Media admitting the problem, universities, NGOs, politicians, charities, all raising awareness about the problem. However, Islamophobia is increasing every day in the UK. Um, how do you explain that? Um, Smile, what do you think? Uh, sorry. Uh, the thing is, yes, of course, all these things are happening, but because we are focused on it and we are looking for those kind of things, we think that it's everywhere, but it's fringe element. Uh, I think how, as, as we both of me and Mignard mentioned, is how the media covers the stories. and how long they covered in the context they covered. So, for example, the University of Birmingham survey, it did get a, some coverage on the day it was released and everything forgotten. You know, it's, it's not there, it's not persistent. Nobody then goes going to the research of why these things are happening. Uh, but we have to carry on. 
uh, the fact that, yes, there are elements and there are groups and organizations that are fighting this. And we have many friends uh, within the wider British society who are trying to address uh, the issue of Islamophobia and we welcome it. But we need more of them and we need those key position holders in the social structure, like the media, like the politicians, like uh, the influencers and so forth, to take this forward and, and get on board. And I don't think we have enough of them. So, yes, we have got, as you mentioned, reports and activities taking place. And you can have demonstration where we have 10,000 people marching in the streets in London. But when it's 60 million, again, 60 million people, you know, we have to put that context. And it's, it's in the right direction, but it's not enough. And the mainstream is not doing enough to cover what is happening to Muslims. Yeah. And Mehdad, what steps government should take to address Islamophobia in the UK? So the steps he needs to take are, are manyfold. Firstly, he needs to acknowledge the problem and uh, call it what it is, and define Islamophobia, accept the definition that Muslims have laid out um, as a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslims who perceive Muslimness. That's number one. Number two, after accepting the definition, he needs to start recognizing how Islamophobia manifests itself. Um, one of the things that they need is more data and better data. Um, on where Islamophobia takes place. That means they need to encourage people to report about Islamophobia and they need to support individuals and institutions who are doing that. At the moment, that's not the case. Muslims feel scared to report and therefore they don't. We need to change that. There needs to be money and marketing put against that. Number three, when it comes to Islamophobia in education uh, of young children, we need to make sure that all the reports that are out there from teachers and others which shows how young Muslim children are called um, terrorists, how young Muslims who... Who, who wear certain um, uh, flags, get, get, get dealt with in certain unfair ways, like Palestinian flags, etc. We need to deal with the Islamophobia that is in our education system, in our health system, in our criminal justice system. Recognize the problem in each of these areas and create tailored solutions in each of those areas. And then, finally, more important, well, not more important than even structures, nothing's more important than structures, but also dealing with the fact that verbal and physical um, um, Islamophobia is dealt with relatively well to some extent. But then at the same time, there are legal changes that need to happen on the law, which mean that um, Muslims should be treated equal to those of other faiths like, like Sikhs and Jews who are protected by race equality legislation. We want all people to be um, protected in an equal way rather than just Jews and Sikhs being protected under certain regulations that Muslims aren't. Now, those are just a small section of those. I and mean, if you go into each one of healthcare, we can talk about each one of these areas far more. Um, but, but in principle, it needs a change in the approach. All of these items I've laid out and summarized have been documented, are well established, have lots and lots of backing to them and are available for those who want it. There are, there are advocacy papers from the Muslim Council of Britain, from others out there, which lay all of this out in excruciating detail in terms of what needs to happen. But, yeah. but that can only happen if there is a will to do that. And at this moment in time, that will doesn't seem to exist. Yeah, and Ismail, my final question to you. Um, the Muslim communities, what steps Muslim communities should take to campaign against Islamophobia? I think Muslim communities should be aware that uh, what is happening to them uh, much more than they are. Uh, they, they should understand that by keeping quiet, the problem is not going to go away and they should learn from what Mikdad is doing and take positive, proactive actions, whether it's joining to complain to the media, holding politicians to account. And most importantly, I think Muslims should demand that they, Muslimness should be able, they should be able to express their Muslimness in public, either whether it be political right to say whatever 
uh, political opinions they have or how they want to express themselves physically, how they want to dress, uh, how they want to pray and so forth. I don't think we should take that. Uh, we should be dictated upon on how we should represent our Muslimness. And I think those things are go hand in glove. And if we carry on along those lines, then hopefully uh, with prudence, uh, we'll be able to bring in more friends and hopefully try and address this issue. And what Mikdad is make, mentioning that this will that is not present at the moment within the political structure and the in- institutions of Britain will be, able to, will be able to counter that and dismantle that. But Muslims really have to first understand the crisis they're facing, become proactive, both in trying to counter it and also express their Muslimness without reservation. Thank you very much, Ismail Patel and Migdad Versi, for being with me today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for all uh, our listeners, and stay tuned every Tuesday for Until the Stories podcast. See you. Bye.